Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Last week, Matt did a great job to really prepare us for one of the more heavier sections of the entire book of Romans. Uh, He set the scene, if you would, because he started to use language and images of judgment and wrath, the judgment of God. And as we sang, we see him on his judgment throne. So we see a courtroom scene before us that Paul is starting to unfold, and he's going to double down on that today, where God is the judge, we are all in the courtroom, in God's courtroom, and Paul is the court reporter. And so today we're going to have a peek into what that courtroom scene looks like. And of course, there are going to be some heavy things this morning because we have a heavy passage before us. But as Adrian Rogers says, you need the black cloth as a background to see how beautiful the gospel is. God inspired the good news just as much as the bad news that we'll read about today. Just as a jeweler lays down the black cloth to show the diamond to the purchaser, it pops and is brilliant and, and bright and shining because of the black backdrop. So let us read of that this morning. Would you please stand as we read Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift, swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Let us pray together, and as we pray, I ask that you pray for me this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessing of your word being read and preached and sung. I pray that you will illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word in all of its glory, the good and the bad. I pray that Christ is glorified and made known and shown brilliantly this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So in chapter 2, as Matt talked about last week, Paul said some pretty strong things of how you're not really Jewish if you're only Jewish outwardly. Being Jewish only is not going to get you in heaven. It's not going to go very far. Being circumcised only from the outside by the letter is not going to get you into heaven. No, you've got to be circumcised inwardly of the heart. You have to be Jewish inwardly in the heart. And of course, this would be a punch in the gut to any good Jewish boy reading this. And Paul knows that he's going to get lashed back, he's going to get pushed back, he's going to get objections. And so right out of the gate, that's what he deals with firstly this morning is the objections. The objections, and there are four topics, eight questions, and you kind of get this rhythm and this cadence with Paul. He has two questions, an answer, and a proof. Two questions, answer, proof. Two questions, answer, proof. Because he knows that these are going to be the questions. And each one of these topics is really just an extension of the one before. And the very first part, uh, topic that Paul deals with is about Jewishness, because that's what he just came out of. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So two questions, answer, and the proof. And the questions are really just two and the same. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? That would be synonymous. If you were circumcised, you were a good Jewish boy. That would be synonymous. And he's using the same language of of what he just came out of in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. And he wants them to know that there is value. Because when he says you're not getting into heaven just because you're Jewish or just because you're circumcised, that would be the question, right? Well, what's the point? If that doesn't get me there, why be Jewish? Why be circumcised? And Paul says, I don't want you to be confused. There is value in being Jewish and circumcised. Much in every way is what Paul says. And he says to begin with, the reason why, as if he's going to give this list, but he, the, the portion that he gives is so strong, he doesn't need points two, three, and four. He says to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God are the utterances of God, the revelation of God. Obviously, that's the Old Testament, the, the law, the prophets, and the sayings. The, the full Old Testament would be in mind here. But Paul is also saved, and he realizes that Christ has been revealed as the Savior as well. So the law and the gospel of Christ have been revealed and entrusted as the oracles of God to the Jewish people. And that has great value. And Paul says that they were entrusted, which is more weighty than what we think of information from point A to point B. Information is passed here. No, to be entrusted with the oracles of God is to have moral obligations to respond appropriately. God has revealed something to the Jewish people that he did not reveal to other nations, and you are to respond appropriately. A moral obligation is implied here. And so for the church, for FBC Dumas today, that's a great thing to remember, that today the oracles of God are being trusted 
to you. When we read the scriptures, when we sing the scriptures, when the scriptures are preached, the oracles of God are being proclaimed here this morning. And that is a great value. Now, just because you go to First Baptist Church, Dumas, or just because you go to a Baptist church, you hear every time the doors open, that doesn't mean you're saved. That's not going to get you anywhere. But it's not nothing either. It is of great value, much in every way. So the first topic that Paul deals with is the Jewishness. And an extension of that is the faithfulness, or lack thereof in this case, of the Jewish people in verses 3 and 4. Read this with me. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Well, we know the story, don't we? The entire Old Testament is that. In fact, the word some here is tines, which is more than just, say, 50-50 or 60-40. No, what's implied is most. Most were unfaithful. That's the entire picture of the Old Testament. God initiates a covenant. Israel rebels. God forgives, brings them back, and it's this struggle back and forth all the way through the Old Testament. So the implication is that's true. Israel always is unfaithful. But unfaithful in what? Or in what way are they most seriously unfaithful? And obviously the exact context or the immediate context following this is what? Verses 1 and 2, the oracles of God. They were entrusted with those oracles of God, and most of them were found unfaithful. And so this raises the question, well, Israel's unfaithful. Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? And of course, what's, what's the answer? The obvious answer is no, because the faithfulness of God is not dependent upon the faithfulness of man. If it were, we'd all be in trouble, including Israel. So the faithfulness of God is not dependent upon man, and Paul emphasizes that by saying, Meganoita, by no means. This is one of ten sayings that Paul has in this letter, and it's the strongest way that you can negate a claim or a question. Meganoita, by no means, God forbid, may it never be, as some of your translations say. No, God will be absolutely faithful, absolutely faithful. And just to double down on this meganoita theme, if you would, he says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. If you took everybody in this room and put you in one corner and you all said something contrary to what God said, that would just show that everybody here is a liar. And you could expand that to the entire world. You put the entire world in one corner. If they say anything contrary to what God has said, that just shows that everybody in the world is a liar. Meganoita, by no means because what's in mind here is the salvation of Israel, right? He's been talking about Jewishness. And so God has promised, and the promise goes all the way back to Abraham, that God will save Israel. That's what's in their mind. And Paul says, absolutely, God will save Israel. 100%. God is always faithful to his promises. Now, it's not going to happen in a way that they were expecting, because that's the entire point that Paul is making. They're not going to be saved just because they're Jewish, just because they're circumcised. No, Paul says that Israel is going to be saved, and he's making the case, and will show us later the Israel tree. This tree of Israel, the natural branches were cut off, and Gentile branches engrafted by faith in Christ. 
and says, that's the Israel tree. That's the real Israel. And God will absolutely save the true Israel. And that's more glorious than what the Jews were expecting. God's going to save us. Yeah, but not just you. Now he can save Jew and Greek. And God will save Israel absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, Paul's model that he gives us of this being true, the proof, he says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He points them back to Scripture. That at the end of the day, God will be true and nobody will say anything on that judgment day. How God saves, who he saves, nobody will complain because God will be true when he is judged. But let it be known that really this is only a question or even a topic because of what? Israel was unfaithful. They were unfaithful with the oracles of God. And so that's a reminder for us this morning that we do not need to be found in the same likeness. With the oracles of God preached, read, sung, and displayed in the ordinances, we must be faithful to the word of God. And so he deals with the second topic and moves on to an obvious extension, which is what? Righteousness. Righteousness. And you'll see that Paul is getting more and more uncomfortable about this entire objection. In verse 5, look at this with me. It says, but if our unrighteousness shows to serve the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? That would be the obvious Jewish response, wouldn't it? Saying, you've been talking about wrath and judgment on us in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. And Paul is referring back to this is where they're going to push back. Because the Jewish response would be, no, 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 we're, we're God's special people. We are circumcised. We are his covenant people. And plus, his righteousness is being put on display, even though we're unrighteous. So God's going to take it easy on me, right? Because I'm a special kind of person in God's eyes. No. And God would be unrighteous if he inflicted wrath on us because we're the special people, right? And Paul feels uncomfortable at all because this is a terrible heart for the Jewish people. Because he says, I speak in a human way. Paul even feels uncomfortable to say in a hypothetical situation of a hypothetical objection that you would ever associate unrighteousness with God. If God inflicts wrath on every Jew that has ever lived, God would be just. God will be just and found just in whatever he decides. And Paul says, no, this can't be. God will always be just, and I speak in a human way because I don't even feel comfortable speaking on your behalf. It's such a poor question, a poor objection. Because he says, by no means, meganoita, for then how could God judge the world? So what's the proof? He answers the question with a question. He says, how could God judge the world? So what's implied here? It would be obvious to the Israelites that God is the judge. Well, if God's going to be the judge, then he must be righteous. Otherwise, he's really not the judge. He's just a tyrant. But no, no Jewish boy would ever say that God is not judge. We even sing it this morning, see thee on thy judgment throne. We all know God created and God will judge at the end. And that would just be absurd in the Jewish mind. So they would check off, yes, God is going to judge. He is the judge. 
And Paul just backs it up. Therefore, God is righteous. Therefore, if he inflicts wrath on those who are unrighteous, God is righteous in doing so. And so the entire argument folds in on itself, and it doesn't even get off the ground by their own standard. And the final extension of this is question seven and eight of the truthfulness of God. The truthfulness. Read this with me. It says, but if though through my lie truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. Right? God being righteous, truthfulness is the same thing coming out there. And we see that Paul is being accused of saying, hey, if truth, God's truth abounds because we lie, why not lie? Same thing as before. If God's righteousness is displayed because we're unrighteous, why not just be unrighteous? God wins and is glorified either way it goes. So you might as well just live and have fun and you do you, as it were. And of course, Paul just doesn't even address it. He says if anybody distorts and twists the gospel in such a terrible manner like that, their condemnation is just. They will be held accountable to the judge. They will be condemned for such heresy. And Paul will deal with this more thoroughly in chapter 5, saying where sin is, grace abounds all the more. And the question is, well, if that's true, why not sin? Paul says, meganoita. No, no, no. We don't, we do not sin because we know grace will be there. And so he just says, their condemnation is just. And so he aptly deals with the objections this morning. He knows that that's going to be the pushback And again, so we're in the courtroom scene together. The objections have been made. And finally, the indictment. The indictment in verse 9. Secondly, it says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For you have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So the indictment is what? That we're under sin. The charge And, of course, Paul is tying us back to where he started. Two questions, answer, proof. He says, what then? Question one, are we Jews any better off? Question two. And there's some debate as to whether or not the we is referring to Jew, Gentile, or church. So it could be either way, but most scholars seem to agree that it is Jews. That's why the ESV supplies that word there. So it's a great translation. Paul is identifying with the Jews because remember where he started, questions one and two? There is value to being Jewish, but are you any better off than anybody else? Nope, not even close. So he just nips it in the bud right there. No, not at all. And then he gives the charge because he's given the charge to the Jews and the Greeks. And you see this shift within this verse. We've been talking about the Jewish people thus far. Chapter 1 is Gentiles. Chapter 2 until this point really has been the Jews. And now we shift to what? To everyone. Because Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You see the shift? He says all. But just in case you miss it, just in case you think that you're not in the courtroom, he says both Jews and Greeks. And that's just Paul's way of saying what? All. Double emphasized here. All, both Jews and Greeks, are charged with what? Being under sin. Everybody in the courtroom of God has this charge upon them. Jew and Greek, and the charge is to be under 
sin. Now, this would be a, a complete slap in the face. The Jewish believers would absolutely hate this. A good Jewish boy would say, yes, we all commit acts of sin, acts of sin. But to be under sin means that you are under the sway of sin. It also means that you are under the condemnation of sin, for the wages of sin is what? Death. And Paul says, guess what? Jew and Greek, death is coming for you all. You are all under sin. Because sin is more than just an act of sin. You really can't separate it from an act, but it's more. In Romans 5.21, sin is described as reigning. In Romans 6.6, 6, sin is described as enslaving. 6.12, described as ruling. 6.14, exercising lordship over you. 6.16, you are either a slave to sin, or 6.18, you are freed from sin. So to be under sin is not less than an act of sin, but it is more. And it is so much more. And the condemnation of the judge who just indicted the entire human race says you're all under sin. I, I told you, we're getting dark, we're getting heavy. You are all under sin. And remember, Paul's just a the court reporter, and he delivers the charge. He delivers the charge, but he doesn't prove it in this verse. So the charge is this. The indictment is this. We are under sin. How do we know that that's true? How do we know that that is the case? So thirdly, this morning, we have the case that is given to support the indictment that we are all under sin. Notice the model that Paul comes with. He says, as it is written, verse 10, as it is written. You want your proof that you're under sin? Here's the word of God. He's a good presuppositional apologetic, if you would. He presents scripture, and he presents it in a way that is called a katina, which is the picture here is a stream of pearls that are one after the other, lined up that they're almost touching each other to present a beautiful strand. And we understand this, so Paul, he presents scripture, 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 just as much as if anybody comes and talks to Pastor Zane or Pastor Matt and says, what does the Bible say about drunkenness? So the pastors would say, well, this verse says this, this verse says this, this says this, this says this. So drunkenness is a sin, and you make your conclusion. So we present a cantina all the time to show that this is what God's word says about us. And so that's all he does. Paul just, scripture, 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 scripture. So that way we know that the indictment that was made is not from us, or it's not from Paul. It's from God. If you've got the NASB, it's all caps. If you've got the CSB, it's bolded or quoted here in the ESV. That this is God's word speaking in this situation. And so the first element of this case that we see is the totality of sin. The totality of sin in verses 10b through 12 Read this with me. This is, if you're not reading your Bible, this is where you start to read with me. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So the first example that he gives shows the state in which every human being finds himself. And notice that Paul is starting on the inside. 
He's speaking of their righteousness. No one. The being itself is not righteous. Inside out, not there. Notice he says no one understands. A picture of the mind. And the handmaiden of the mind is what? The will. Nobody seeks after God. That's the will. All have turned aside. The posture literally is to lean away from everything that is about God. That's where we find ourselves. What is our value? Worthless. That's what it says. You look at it. They have become worthless. I really do get tired of silly worship songs, especially of late. I've heard one recently of just how worthy we are. That fear is a liar and you are just so good. That's not true. That's not true. Remember where Paul started. If anybody says anything contrary to God, you just throw them in the liar bucket. No, our value is what? Worthless from the inside out. From the inside out. Everything about us is worthless. And of course, if we're worthless and sinful from the inside out, nobody does good. Not even one person. None does good. So the questions we got to ask, because we hear it when we evangelize and talk to people, is how many righteous people are there? What's the answer? Somebody say it. None. And just in case you missed it, no, not one. But what about that innocent man in the deepest, darkest jungle who has never heard of Christ? Would God send him to hell? No. God will not send an innocent man to hell. What's the problem, though? There is no innocent man in the deepest, darkest jungle. That's why we send missionaries. If he was good, you don't send missionaries. You send a wall-building committee that says, we're not going to bother him. He's good. There's no innocent people in the deepest, darkest jungles. No, not one. And if that strikes you, if it hits you in the gut, if somebody opposes this, you say, let God be true, though every man were a liar. It just shows that we are liars. But I see good deeds all the time. I just saw this morning, Kim helped a little old lady across the street. Well, I did too, so I must be twice as good as Kim, right? Because two little old ladies across the street is twice as good as one. Well, that would be true if that's reality. The problem is, is Kim's standard of helping a little old lady across the street is not the standard. So therefore, I'm not twice as good because she was never the standard to begin with. What's the standard? God and God's word, his law. Remember, we're in the, we are quoting scripture at this point. Paul is quoting scripture. So even our good deeds are really not good. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Even the things that you think are good are filthy rags. So the Bible is true, and every man is a liar, that no one is righteous. Who's seeking after God? How many? What's the answer? Say it. No one is seeking after God. Oh, but I know somebody who is seeking after God. No. Let every man be true, or a liar, though God be true. You might see two scenarios here. If you see somebody seeking after God, most of the time they're seeking the gift and not the giver. We see this all the time. We know this. Everybody sitting in this room at one point or another has come to God for what God can give you instead of for who God is. 
All right, we all know this to be true deep down. Nobody was seeking God. You sought the goodies that he would give you. You didn't seek the giver, but the gift. But maybe somebody really is truly seeking after God. Well, the question is, is who gets the credit for that? Who gets the credit for that? In 1 John 4.19, it says, we love is seeking God an act of love. Yes, we love because he first loved us. So if somebody's truly seeking after God, who gets the credit? God, because he sought them first. He loved them first. John 6, 44, no one can come to me. That's ability, not permission. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him. So who initiated it? Who's drawing them to himself? God, you weren't doing that on your own, as we all know. You were dead. Dead people don't seek. It's obvious. God gets all the credit and all the glory. So the Bible's true. No one seeks after God. Or the question, why do bad things happen to good people? What's the problem? Bad question. There are no good people. No one does good. Bad things happen to bad people. I know, don't you just love it? I get to be the one to tell you how bad you are every time I'm in this pulpit. <laughs> this is just how it is. This is the providence of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. That is who we are from the inside out. But notice the outflow of sin in verses 13 and 14. It says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So see the pictures that Paul is painting. He talks about your will, your mind, your being, who you are from the inside out as being rotten to the core. And then the image we see is that their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. The venom is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Notice the picture. So you're rotten from the inside out. It's coming up the throat, up to the tongue, to the lips, to the speech. It's not the other way around. It's not you're such a bad sinner because of things happening this way. No, the picture that God paints is you're rotten on the inside and it's just being regurgitated here. Moving up the throat, to the tongue, to the lips, to the speech of curses and bitterness. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we have sinned. Other way around. It's from the inside out. As the old saying is, what's in the bucket comes up, or what's in the well comes up in the bucket. From the inside out. And Jesus affirms this, even uses similar language in Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers. See the similar language? How can you speak when you are evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now that's specifically to Jews, but remember, this is applied to both Jews and Greeks, all, from the inside out. So we are sinners, and it starts to show in sins of the speech, but it doesn't stop with our mouth. It just keeps going and pollutes the entire world. The results of sin in verse 15 and 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. It doesn't stop at the mouth. It goes to action, to violence and bloodshed. And what does that do? It just continues to taint the world that's already tainted from the inside out. 
And so we have this disease of sin from the inside out coming out and just spreading in violence and bloodshed. And Paul wants to disillusion us to think that that is from the outside in because he gives us the root of sin in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. That's why we have this nasty situation of being sinners, saying sinful things, and doing sinful things, because none of us has the fear of God before our eyes. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And we don't have that. And it's before their eyes. Notice, it's not after the eyes. It's before. It's more than just what we see right here. It's the entire worldview that we have. Everything about us from the inside out filters through this sin filter that we are. So anything that comes out is just going to be sinful. What looks like good is not good. What's bad is bad because of the filter. We have no fear of God before our eyes. And so the case here this morning is absolutely solid. The indictment that you're under sin, Jew, Greek, all, is now supported by the case of verses 10 through 18. And so God is on his judgment throne in this courtroom. The case has been made by the word of God itself. And so the verdict, finally, this morning in verses 19 and 20, look at this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be account- held accountable to God. Held accountable to God. What's the verdict that God gives to everyone? You're all accountable to him. You will all be judged by him for who you were just previously described in 10 through 18 you'll be held accountable for being a dirty, rotten sinner, speaking dirty, rotten, sinful things, and doing dirty, rotten, sinful things to others. You're going to be judged. You are held accountable to God. And he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And the law is spoken of broadly here. Every good Jewish boy would know the five books of Moses. That's the law. Leviticus, the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy, all the the heavy stuff. But notice that when Paul quoted all of those Old Testament scriptures before, he didn't quote the Ten Commandments. No, he quoted Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, what we might consider the light stuff. We love us some Psalms on Sunday morning, don't we? Yes, glory to God. Well, there's more than that there. And even the quote-unquote light stuff condemns you, let alone the Ten Commandments let alone Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Man, forget that. You did, no way you would make it. You didn't make it past the light stuff. The law is speaking broadly here, and it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is that? That's everybody. Because Paul has been building his case from the ground up. If you are an unbeliever, an atheist, or an agnostic here this morning, you are a law unto yourself. And your own conscience bears witness that you break that law, even if you don't have the inscripturated law. Or if you're a good Jewish boy and girl, you have the inscripturated law of the entire Old Testament. But you're under that, and nobody keeps the law. 
And so it doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever or a believer. It doesn't matter what world religion you're in. Everybody is under the law and will be judged by the law of God, the law giver. And nobody escapes this. Remember, all Jew, Greek. Law unto themselves and scripturated law. Here is what the verdict is. And so that it may be what? So that the point of this, of being under this, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. And the image is a legal image. This is why the, Paul is doubling down on this courtroom imagery. So if somebody gives their objections, the case is made against them, the verdict made, you've got nothing less to say. And so he just puts his hand over his mouth. And it shows everybody in the courtroom that I've got nothing less to say. The judgment was right. The verdict that God gave that we're held accountable to him is right. It's a sign of defeat. But in case you're just stubborn enough, not if you don't do it willingly, somebody will do it for you in the courtroom. As one commentator notes, if a person who was judged to be clearly guilty continued speaking, the court might order their mouths to be stopped. Literally, somebody else would do it for you because the verdict is that strong. Acts 23, 2 says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That's the image here. The courtroom image of being judged and you're struck in the mouth and you're struck in the mouth by the law of God. Whether Jew or Greek. So that every mouth may be stopped. So the verdict stands. You have no defense at this point. Why? Because in verse 20 it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul just seals the deal here, puts a rubber stamp on saying, this is, this is a done deal. This is the conclusion. No one, read it for yourself, no human being will be justified in his sight, not by works of the law. Whether by Gentile, chapter 1, Jew, chapter 2, believers here, no. No one will be justified by any works of the law. And that would be a slap in the face for any Jewish reader because they would be proud. I've got the inscripturated law from God. We're his special people. We have circumcision. We had Moses. We're awesome. And God says, no, it stops your mouth too, because no one will be justified by that. And so the image is silly. They're so proud to be under the law, under this covenant law, but they shouldn't be. Because what's the reward of being under the law? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Your only reward for being happy that you are under the law is that it just shows you how bad you are. That's all it does. The book of James describes the the Bible, generally speaking, as a mirror. As somebody comes to the mirror with a dirty face and walks away without doing anything about it. The mirror doesn't clean the dirt. It's the mirror that's held up here that shows you how rotten you are from the inside out. So there's no reason to boast because you're in trouble. If you stay in that state, the law will not help you. In fact, the opposite is true. The law will condemn you. 100% of the time. So notice the picture. All of us are in God's courtroom. All Jew, Greek. And we stand condemned. The objections have been made. The indictment voice, the case made. And the just verdict 
delivered by God himself, supported by the word of God itself. And we all stand in this courtroom under sin, under the wrath and condemnation and judgment of sin. We are under this. And the law that is brought out is held up in front of your face to show you that that's the case. You don't get to argue. That is what it is. You are what the Bible says you are. And the Bible says you sin because you are a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. The verdict has been made. It's time to go to the hangman's noose. We were born dead and will be delivered over to death unless our case can be acquitted. Bad news. Everybody's mouth is stopped at this point. At the end of the verdict, every mouth closed. Willingly or unwillingly, you don't get to speak anymore. The case is over. The verdict has been delivered. So we're all in trouble. Every single one of us. But God, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, sends in his best lawyer. And he takes the stand. And he shows his hands. He says he is guilty, but his price has been paid. And the just judge is satisfied. And so he removes the chains. He opens the mouth. He opens the eyes and the ears of the guilty sinner because of the case that was just made on his behalf. What more could that sinner do at this point than simply praise and thank God? You couldn't do anything. You were found guilty already. What more could you do now than to sing his praise? What better song could we sing here in a little bit than before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. It's over. It is over. And the scriptures just flood back to our memory. That we know that this is the case. We know who we are, and we know that this is the only way that it could have been. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why through Christ? Because John 14.6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the new mediator of this. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that gives us confidence. No tongue can bid us thence depart. Romans 8.38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's the only way. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God 
And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for what? For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Church, what more could you do than to sing his praise? Because no tongue in heaven can bid you thence depart. If you were in Christ, you will remain there. Because he brought you into this new covenant. Unbelievers, if you are with us today, as R.C. says, every breath you take is under the wrath and condemnation of God. And as you draw near to your life, you will be judged under the wrath and condemnation of God. You must respond today in faith in Christ. It's your only hope. Your mouth is stopped. You are dead. You can do nothing. As J.C. Ryle Apley said, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. You must respond today. Believers, you know that this is the case. I just told you how bad you are, but you already knew that coming in here. We only read the mirror, we see the mirror and what it shows us, that you did nothing to be brought into the grace of God. For it is by his grace, his faith, his Christ. It's his gospel that is preached. This is God's story. And all we can do is sing his praise because no tongue can bid us thence apart the morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful grace and mercy that you have shown us. We thank you for the bad news as well. That your word did not leave us ignorant, stumbling in the dark as a dying corpse, but you gave us our, your word to show us who we are, to show us our need. And the need pointed to Christ, who you provided. I pray that you help us to give him glory this morning in spirit and truth, to shout and sing and lift our voice because there's nothing that we did do or can do. We simply offer you praise. We thank you for who you are and what you have accomplished in Christ. And it's his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.